Hi guys, it's me, Ben. A couple of words before today's Nerdist Writers panel. Uh, I need to thank my friend Adam Rogers and Missy Schwartz, both of Wired Magazine, for opening up the Wired offices for us to have this uh, panel in San Francisco. It was really fun. Wired provided this great space and a setup and everything, and they were terrific. Go check out Wired.com. I believe they're going to put up some video from the event. I don't know. If they don't, check it out anyway. It's a great site, and there's cool stuff on it to look at. Uh, so thanks again to Adam and Missy, and thanks to everyone at 826 Valencia, uh, who were terrific about helping me promote this event. Um, hopefully we'll be up in San Francisco again sometime this year, uh, and more of you guys will come out and enjoy it. Uh, I also need to thank uh, Glenn David Gold, who really was the impetus for putting this together. I'm, I'm a big fan of Glenn's and now glad to say a friend. And um, he helped bring in Eric Larson and uh, kind of made the whole thing feel very real to me. So I have to thank Glenn for that. Uh, and he's also terrific on this panel. As ever, with out-of-town panels, the audio is going to be a little bit wonky. Uh, bear with it. You know, um, one of the panelists didn't always have the mic to his mouth. You can still hear him, but uh, it, it gets a little weird. Um, also, we had to do a little editing as there was some, were some feedback issues at the beginning of the recording, um, so just be aware of that. I think I covered it, but um, just in case it, it, anything seems jumpy to you. If you are a fan of the Nerdist Writers panel, and if you're listening to this, I assume you are, uh, I also assume you're some kind of a writer. Uh, good for you. Um, we need more good writers. Uh, and if you are a writer, whether it's a television writer, a novelist, a comic book writer, a uh, writer of feature films, Whatever it is, um, you could always use a workshop for your material. There's a fantastic opportunity going on uh, for the next couple weeks and is the sign-up period. It's called the Michelangelo Screenwriting Program. Go to michelangeloscreenwriting.com, sign up for one of the sessions, come to Italy, workshop your stuff with me, with my writing partner, with a group of like-minded people. Uh, for two weeks, there's also a one-week session. It's a little more intensive, but this should be the best time. We promise you'll come out of this experience with a really good script that you can turn over to agents or managers or industry people or whatever it is that you wish to do with it. Uh, it's Michelangelo Screenwriting, michelangeloscreenwriting.com. Um, the, the program happens in June, but the sign-up is only for another couple of weeks. Uh, please join us. It should be a lot of fun. And finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps to uh, keep bringing you the podcast because, you know, the better the rankings, the more attention we get, the more money goes to 826LA, uh, and, you know, that's a good cause. So please leave a review on iTunes and uh, know that I appreciate it. I, I really do check them, especially when I'm feeling sad and they make me feel happy. So thanks if you've already done it, and uh, thanks if you're going to do it. All right, now, enjoy this really fun panel from San Francisco. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah.
Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel Series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on 826LA, visit 826LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Please, you guys, welcome all of our guests, Joshua Davis, Eric Larson, Glenn David Gold, and Michael Shabon. Come on down. Gentlemen, sure. thank you for being here for white guys. <laughs> Is that how it's going to be? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Ooh. Let's uh, let's jump right in and get to it. Uh, and and Joshua, let's start with you because you're st- sitting right here to my left. All of you guys are in the enviable position, especially by we here who wish to be writers, uh, to get paid to write. Tell us what it is to be a professional writer. What do you do with your time, uh, and and how do you spend your days? How much of it is actually spent writing? Well, uh, so most of what I do is I'm a journalist, and there's a split between going out into the world and tracking down a story, reporting a story, talking to people, uh, and that's the most part of it. It's finding the stories, it's um, doing the reporting, and that can take years. I've spent six years, seven years on a story, and then I come back and it takes, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks to write it, and then, you know, another month or so to edit it, and then what, I move on to the next one. During the actual writing phase, um, you know, you, you've spent anywhere from months to years gathering the data that you need to put it together. Um, what does a day of writing look like for you on a story like this? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll wake up in the morning and uh, make a pot of mint tea. And uh, I start around maybe 8.30ish, uh, try to get email and stuff out of the way by 9. And then from 9 till 12, 12.30, I'm writing and take an hour, 45 minutes for lunch and then hit it again at 1.30 until six, and I try to average wow. about a thousand words a day mm-hmm. when I'm doing journalism. Uh, great. We'll, we'll come back. Uh, Michael, tell us about what a, a day of writing looks like for you. Well, <clears throat> uh, my writing day is in a period of transition right now. I've been a nocturnal writer for mm-hmm. most of my writing life, um, starting as soon as I was out of the control of adult people who told me what time I had to go to bed. Um, I started staying up late and um, found that that was a natural, naturally creative period for me to sit down and try to get work done. Um, it is, so typically that would be a night that started at 10 o'clock and went till, say, 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, and I also try to hit that thousand yeah. word. Thousand words is, is the mark for me, too. Um, what I discovered 18 years ago when I had my wife and I had our first child is that that is a horrible schedule <laughs> for a parent. Um, if you, and particularly once your kids get to the point where they they get up in the morning and they have to go to school and all these things have to be done in the morning, 
um, to their bodies um, and, and their, their stomachs and stuff to get them out the door. Um, somebody's got to be there to do that. And if you've been up till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning the night before, you're not really going to relish the thought of having to um, get up at 6 or 6.30 to, to begin that painful process every day. On the other hand, um, that's also... A lot goes on in the morning, and that's when kids are sort of they're they, they're fresh. They haven't had, they, their day hasn't yet been ruined by school, and you know when when, when I would sleep in because I was staying up so late, I would miss that whole morning thing, and I wouldn't see them until they got home from school at three o'clock when they're cra- cranky and they have right. homework. And so I never liked it. It was never a great fit, and I kept trying repeatedly to. I've tried many times to switch over. To a morning schedule, and I'm doing it again right now. And for the first time ever, it's actually seems to it's be taking. working. Yes, it's taking. So time. when they when they leave for school, you sit down right and start typing. Right, I get up, I do the whole breakfast, whatever, get them to school, then go to work. Um, I'm curious. I've talked to a few writers who do the, have this nighttime routine, mm-hmm. uh, and it it blows my mind because I cannot imagine you know sitting down not not sitting down at nine o'clock and saying all right I'll watch uh, Cheers and then I'll go to mm-hmm. bed. What was it about the nighttime routine? You know, did you feel something click when you sat down? Did you know there was a time to sit? And we try not to get so heady and mm-hmm. emotional this early on in the conversation, okay. but I'm really curious about that. Um, it's it's partly, I think, a brain function thing. It just that was a, a typically would coincide with an alert period for me. I'm not really sure why. It was a drag to have it hanging over. It is a drag to have your work hanging over your head all day long yeah. and thinking. Because I actually, once I'm in the chair and I'm writing, usually I more or less enjoy the process. Sometimes I, I really love it. Um, but the prospect of having to do it is often quite painful. And so it really does seem like a stupid idea to just prolong that, that period of dread for hours, for 12 hours, you know, and then and only then get a chance to experience actual um, production. It's much better when you're just waking up. The, the dread is sort of diffused by, by you know, morning. Right, you have your rituals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's much, much better. I, I do prefer it. I just hope I can keep it up. Do you find that your writing is different now that you're on this uh, diurnal routine? Um, well, my writing is different, but I'm, that's because I'm making a deliberate effort right now to make my writing. I'm writing in a kind of voice or style that I have never really tried before, but it's not a morning thing so much as a stylistic choice. Okay, well, we'll get back to that. That's, okay. that's very interesting. Uh, Glenn, tell us about your ritual, your habits, your routines. How, how do you write... Are you one of these writers who is filled with dread and in, in the anticipation time and then happy once you sit down? How does it work for you? Uh, yes to everything. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm terribly undisciplined. Uh, my routines change all the time. I w- for instance, sometimes I feedback. Uh, sure. <laughs> just, it's just, I'm just testing things out uh, little by little, just seeing how they work and everything. Um, one of the uh, I used to, I used to write at night all the time, and really? for me, yeah, for me the reason for that was two things. One was I think that you need to sort of recreate a little bit of loneliness when you're working, and there's a sense of a little bit of deprivation, just a slight bit of it, and that okay, this is better than sleep. You know, other people are sleeping, and I'm doing this, and there's a little. This, I think there's a little bit of drama involved in it that I like quite a bit. Um, late, does that work? Yes, that's true. Okay. Um, and then during, but now I'm working during the day, and this is this is the, the fatal thing for me is that 
I'm undisciplined, and also a, I do a lot of research. Research. And, and when I was a kid, I remember this. I was about eight years old, reading Dick Cavett's autobiography. You must have read Dick Cavett's autobiography. Oh, I never, never. Did. Okay. Everybody must have read Dick Cavett's autobiography. He talked about his working process being. He would sit down at a desk, his pencil would fall into the desk, and he'd find a Life magazine down there from 1952, and he'd spend the rest of the day under the desk flipping through the magazine. All right, so I wake up in the morning, and the way I work is because I turn off the fucking internet. <laughs> but it took me a long, long time to understand why I wasn't getting anything done, and it's because there's this ultimately fascinating, mind-fracturing, <laughs> sentence-unfinishing thing out there that will take you down. And How did you find the discipline to turn off the internet? That's really hard. It's, no, it's actually, it's, I, I moved to a place that had no internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was just no choice. That's, That's what it took. Are there still such places? <laughs> there is, yeah, Inverness. Yeah, up in Inverness. So I actually had to, like, in the mornings, like, I, if I wanted to check my email, I would, like, take my dog for a walk for, like, a mile <laughs> to the corner store, and they say, oh, you're here to check your internet again, <laughs> <laughs> And buy cream. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> But no, but since doing that, so my routine now is that I do, I do this thing of about, it's about, it's no longer than three hours. I can't make, even if I want to work longer than three hours, I realize there's like diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. And I go out and I have a life, and then I'll like reread it, and if I'm really excited about it, I might do a little, in the afternoon maybe. You, yeah, you'll reread it on the same day, come yeah. back. Yeah, and just be happy that I'm in something. And I try to finish in the middle of a sentence. Hmm. I've heard this a lot. Yeah, do you tell, tell them why. Um, if you... No, generally, you know how a sentence is going to end when you're starting to write it, and so if you sit, if you finish in the middle of the sentence for the day, you at least have that the next morning. Mm -hmm. If I did that, I would just—I know I would come back and just be like, "What the what? hell? <laughs> Where was this going? <laughs> Who wrote this crap?" Yeah, that's often what happens. Okay. Yeah, it's something at least. Yeah, we often hear about you know whether it's the middle of a sentence or ending at a high point or ending just before the thing you want to write. Uh, it's it's all very good advice. Yeah. Uh, Eric, uh -oh. I cannot imagine what your days are like. Uh, you are writing, you are drawing, uh, you're publishing, you're editing. It's madness. Yeah, what's it look like? Well, it's it's a whole different kind of setup than than these guys, mm -hmm. um, because I'm writing and then I'm drawing my own words. So uh, I often don't start with anything. Meaning, I'll just be like, I've got nothing here, and I just start drawing it, and it'll be, I'm just, I'm just going to see what I can get done, and I'll just start laying out a few pages, and then um, I, I do it in order, so I, I do pencil the whole thing, and then I'll script it all afterwards. Interesting. But often I'll start with that, without a plot, without really even a, anything. It'll what? just be the vaguest <laughs> idea of what I need to accomplish in the issue, and... Um, I really don't put, make notes for myself that are that far ahead. I just will go in there with whatever's in my noggin and just bang out Let's start something. with penciling, too. Start with penciling. And if I've got an idea for a line of dialogue, I'll write it on the page. It'll be like, oh, I've got to make sure that I get in this clever quip. <laughs> I'll put that one down right here. I'll remember that. It's going to be a zinger. But um, other than that, I just I fire through it. And then, um, and then I script it after I've sent it off because I have it lettered on the boards. Oh, really? So that way I have to get it right kind of the first time because there's no, there's no rewriting. And so I'll, I'll just start scripting it 
in order, starting on page one. Uh, general, my, my old routine used to be that I would, uh, I had a letterer who was really fast named Chris Eliopoulos, mm -hmm. and um, what I would do is I would finish an issue, send it off, FedEx, and that night I would sit up and I'd script half the issue and do balloon placement and all that stuff during the night so that when he got the package the next morning, he'd start lettering it. And then he would send me back pages, and by the time I actually kind of got pages from him, which would generally be the next day or the day after, I would have finished scripting the issue. And so it was like this great process. <laughs> now my letterer is, is not as fast as that, so there ends up being this awkward, like, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> I've sent it off. I don't have anything to ink here. But there's always just so much just stuff that needs to be done. There's letters pages, there's covers that need to be drawn, there's all sorts of other stuff. So I am, I'm not sitting there going, I don't know what to do today. I guess I'm playing paddle ball again. Are you, are you an internet off guy when you're doing this? Or do you know no. Music? No. <laughs> no music. Yeah, I wonder no. about that actually from I, I'll, each of I'll, you. Music yeah. when I, I can deal with music when I'm inking. I can't when I'm penciling or scripting. Because it, I just find it a distraction. Yeah. Huh. Glenn, do you listen to music when you write? No. No. Why not? Is it, is it the distraction? Uh, music is a weird... I like music... See, I like music even more than I like writing. But I, <laughs> in fact, I like it so much I don't want to ever try to make it. Like, I really like that when I'm listening to a song, I never am taking it apart in my head mm -hmm. and going, oh, fuck, I could do a better bass line than that. <laughs> yeah. Fuck you, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but like, and also, it just, I like the idea of it just like sort of completely taking me out of my head, and I rely a lot on music, but usually it's like if I'm out running or something, I'm listening, like, uh, um, I, my, my, my novel Sunnyside started because of Aaron Copeland's Hoedown. Really? Yeah, I used to listen to it over and over again in the car. You'd hate it, hate it to be a passenger with me, but I used to just <laughs> listen to it just thunderously loud because I was scripting in my head an imaginary Rin Tin Tin movie that was done to the motions of Hoedown. And... That's amazing. Wait, this is like you're living my life, This is called Nerdist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, it's the right crowd. <laughs> okay, yeah. So uh, I did that, and uh, when I was done, I had nothing to do with it because no one was going to give me $130 million to make a four-minute Rin Tin Tin Movie, you know, the bleacher. <laughs> so, but uh, so I loved the music; it was creative for me. But I couldn't listen. Right. That's so interesting, uh, Michael. Do you listen to music? I do yes, constantly. I, I was going to say, I'm having just finished Telegraph Avenue. There are some beautiful passages in there where you feel the songs that may or may not exist. Right. Uh, I imagine you had to have been listening to things. Yeah, I mean, well. when I was listening, when I was writing that book, I was listening to pretty constantly, much constantly to. Um, the, the, the kind of music that the characters in that book specialize in at their used record store and that they play in the band that they're in together. Um, but, and I do tend to program my listening to suit in some way, either an obvious way like that or some weird, less obvious way, um, like uh, this project that my wife and I are doing. We're trying to create this series at HBO that's set during World War II and it's about British spies in World War II. And for some reason, when I was working on the script for that, I had to listen to Wagner 
overtures. <laughs> and I don't, like, nothing else would work. I kept trying to get away from the Wagner overtures, and it would just, there was something about that that would just set the mood in my mind. Uh, she, well, we worked separately, so we took turns on the draft, so she, she was not subjective. What was she when she works, she doesn't listen to music that much. Only if I'm in the room, she can tolerate it. But uh, it, has, it has to be instrumental. It has to be dynamically relatively stable. It can't have too many super loud parts and super quiet parts. I find that distracting. Um, and um, certain pieces of music always work, no matter what I'm working on, like Steve Reich's music for 18 musicians. Um, it's just the perfect piece of writing music. I bet it would even work for you. Good lord. <laughs> Joshua, tell us about, well, firstly, and let's sit here about the, the music question. Do you listen uh, to music I anywhere? I would love to. I love the idea of being able to listen to music, but I, I can't. It just yeah. distracts me. I get distracted. <laughs> and so what I'll do sometimes is I'll write and I'll stop, and there might be a piece of music that I think might help me feel what's going on with the people that I'm writing about. So I'll stop and I'll listen to that music for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. I'll turn it off and then I'll try to channel that energy into the piece. Okay. Interesting. Huh. Um, I'm particularly curious about, and this is shifting gears a little bit, um, your book, The Underdog, um, is a memoir. Um, tell me about the process of putting it together. Were you writing as you went through the experiences? And, t- and tell folks what it's about just so they know. Well, it... it I, it didn't start out as a book. Um, I was working right over there at 666 Folsom. They've actually renamed it. It's no longer 666 Folsom. Uh, and there was a reason. I mean, it was I was a data entry clerk, and I was pretty miserable. Uh, and one weekend, I saw a flyer for the U.S. National Arm Wrestling Championship. And it said anybody could enter. I thought that would be fun. It would be different than what I do every day, which is miserable and boring. So I should try something different. Uh, and I went out there, and they said, uh, the organizers said, it's open to anybody. You can wrestle if you want. I thought that would be interesting to get that experience. Uh, and so I wrestled uh, in my weight class. Uh, and it's double, double elimination. I got my ass kicked, you know, because I had never arm wrestled in my life. I wrestled my brother when we were 10, right? Uh, and so I was eliminated, and I'm sitting in the back with the audience watching the awards ceremony, and they do the announcement for the lightweight division. They say, fourth place, the United States, Joshua Davis, come on up here. <laughs> I'm like, what? You know? And I get up there, they put a medal around my neck, and, and it turns out I was fourth out of four. <laughs> there were only three other contestants in the weight class. That's so cute. Uh, what it ended up doing for me, though, is uh, the... Two weeks later, Leonard Harkless called the president of Team USA, and he said, look, by our bylaws, uh, we invite the top two to the world championship, and we work our way down the list if those guys can't make it. <laughs> so you're the alternate. The other two guys can't make it, so how would you like to be part of Team USA and wrestle at the world championship and continue Poland in December? <laughs> oh my God, that's so great. I was like, yes, that's exactly Absolutely. what I should be doing with my life. Uh, and uh, so I, like, at that point, obviously I hadn't taken it seriously before, just a lark, but now I'm part of, you know, Team USA, I'm representing my country. Mm-hmm. So I got an arm warmer, and I got a coach, and uh, I started training, but only with my right arm, because I'd only qualified with my right arm, and I still had to stay in my weight class. So I tried to get huge with this arm, and I emaciated my left side, so I became like the crab. My friends were calling me the crab, one big side. Uh, and I, you know, at that point, I, 
I had never really thought about being a journalist. I had written fiction, um, but not with much success. And I had this whole extraordinary kind of life experience where I went to Poland and I ended up 17th in the world. Whoa. Way to go crap. Yeah, I know. I, I, you know, out of 18. <laughs> the 18th guy didn't show up. But uh, I, I've actually never won a competitive arm wrestling match in my life. Uh, but, you know, putting And my... yet you're the most famous arm wrestler there is. <laughs> well, you know. Sylvester Stallone, probably, over the top. I won't sure. want to take that away from He's you. not a pro. Yeah. Uh, so, it definitely, that changed my life. And I had a neighbor at the time uh, who was a, an editor here at Wired. And he said, look, that's, a, that's a, a great magazine story. And so he helped me kind of write a pitch, which is a, oh, just this one-page summary of what, the, what happened. Uh, and I sent it off, and I ended up getting commissioned by Maxim to write it. And that was my first magazine feature. Wow, I did not experience. realize that. Yeah. What was your uh, experience in fiction before that? You say you were I'd attempting written, it. Yeah, I'd written a novel and, and put it away. <laughs> uh, and I had written some screenplays, put those away. As and uh, ended up as a dad entry player. Wow. Had, had you fairly given up, or were you still writing? No, I writing? was still writing in okay. my off time, mm -hmm. you know, in between at nights, and even when I... I actually graduated from doing actual number typing to answering a phone. And when the phone wouldn't ring, I was writing another no novel. <laughs> so. um, and, and what's the state of these novels, as long as we're talking about them? What's that? What's the state of these novels? I, I don't even, you know, I think I printed them up, and so they must be somewhere. <laughs> but they're on the, like, old-school 3.5 discs. Uh, you know, so. You'll never get them. <laughs> I, I think I tried putting, a friend of mine has an old Macintosh, and I tried putting it in, but they, they decay. You know, all those warnings about back up your diskettes, right? I never listen. <laughs> but they say, I don't know what you guys say. I've always heard you throw away your first novel. I don't know if you did. I'm, uh, I'm curious about this. Did not get thrown away. Well, the first one you finished, I threw away a lot before mm -hmm. I finished one finally. But no, I didn't throw away the first one. Uh, at what age did you attempt a novel for the first time? Um, 15 or 16. Do you remember I got what it like three or four pages of it? I didn't get very far. Uh, tried again a few weeks later, and maybe got four and a half pages. Um, I didn't really sit down and try to bust out a whole lot of pages in the way that you have to for to write a novel till I was probably in college, uh, and probably got up to about thirty-five pages, and. Uh, you know, just kept losing interest, or other things seemed more interesting at that point than writing a novel, um, most of them having nothing to do with writing at all. And it wasn't until I, was, I had been accepted into the MFA program at UC Irvine, which is where Glenn also went a few years after I did, um, that I went down for a visit to the workshop and met the people who were currently in the workshop and some of them were going to be my fellows the next year. Some of them would have been leaving. But it seemed to me that they were all writing novels, every single one of them, and I panicked. <laughs> um, and so just in defense and just out of sheer, you know, not wanting to be shown up, I just started a novel. Um, like three days later when I got back up here, I was living in Berkeley at the time, and, um, and that became my first novel, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh. Oh, wow. So it was my thesis at, for that. I used it as, for my thesis at 
MF, uh, at the MFA program, and then got How much published. does the novel that we know, the Mysteries of Pittsburgh that we know, resemble that thesis? Um, pretty strongly. Really? I did a, I got a, my editor edited it, and I made a few little um, additions, and I cut some things, but it was pretty much, really it wasn't like, a heavy edit. I just like the idea that literary history got made from basically the fear of showing up with a long lunchbox. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, banana splits, <laughs> short stories. <laughs> no, nice job. Yeah, no, I know. It was just, it was the stupidest. And, and the way I did it was, I was like, crap, i got to write a novel. What am I going to write a novel about? And then, I was, actually, I was staying at my mother's house in Oakland, the Oakland Hills, and my, I was sleeping in their basement. My stepfather had this one sort of dusty remote shelf in a corner of the basement where the, his college English books were kept. And I just was sort of pacing back and forth in front of that shelf trying to figure out what to do. And I looked and I saw The Great Gatsby. And I was like, this is a novel. Um, how did he, let me see what he, how he did it. So I sat down and I read The Great Gatsby and, um, you know, loved it and had a wonderful time reading it. And then I thought, okay, there's something there and then I put the book back and just so happened like right next to it or on the same shelf was Goodbye Columbus by Philip Roth so I, and it was short so I grabbed that and I read that and, and it was just that chance conjunction of two books because they're both set in over the course of one summer I actually think Great Gatsby had an influence on Goodbye Columbus and that explains the similarity but it doesn't explain why they were sitting next to each other on the bookshelf and um you know, and I thought, there's a structure right there. Like, they start at the beginning of the summer, they end at the end of the summer. There's a kind of inherent poignancy in that, and a lot can happen in a summer, as I knew from previous summers of my own, during which a lot had happened. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to write a novel about a summer. It's going to start in June, it's going to end in August, and that's how I'm going to do this. Um, and, and I assume, you know, like any young novelist, you were drawing on your own experiences. Yes, I mean, I, I was told that was how you did it. That Absolutely. You, there's this thing called write, a, write what you know, yeah. write about what you know, which turns out, in hindsight, I think is pretty much the worst advice that you could give a writer, but they, people keep repeating it. <laughs> well, it's, it's the worst advice when taken literally. Yes, right? or I think it needs to be appended to it. You have to say, write about what you know, but know more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Glenn, talk to us a little bit about the uh, fits and starts. The usual question we ask is, what was the first thing you got paid for? But I'm curious about, you know, what was the stuff... I that. (laughs) (laughs) What was the stuff leading up to uh, the first novel? Uh, The first thing I wrote that I was ever actually proud of, I was was 13 years old, and I wrote a 50-page origin of S.H.I.E.L.D. (laughs) (laughs) And I sent it in to Marvel Comics. Wait. And loved it. (laughs) What was in this? What would you remember the story? Um, I you act it out. I, <laughs> usually, it works best with interpretive dance okay. and uh, perhaps some Aaron Copeland playing in the background. <laughs> we, Steve Reich, the eighteen guitars playing in the background while I do. Like, we happen to have Samuel L. Jackson here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, this was the old school sort of Jim Steranko, Nick Fury, mm-hmm. like where it turned out that uh, it was the Countess's mother was actually the founder of Shield after. She came over from Italy after, like, there was this whole romance with Nick Fury that she'd had. And since he was eternally young, there was, like, this actual, this strange thing. He'd never told the Countess that he'd had this thing with her mom. And, uh, and uh, it was this big versus Doctor Doom sort of uh, sort of thing. I was, what, uh, the reason I wrote it was that it was an issue of Foom, where 
Jim Shooter had talked about they wanted to do what became Marvel's Secret Wars with like doing all the characters. So I thought I'd write an origin of S.H.I.E.L.D. that involved all the characters I knew about. And did you write it as prose? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what an outline looked sure. like. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, and, and I assume, I mean, you're a comic reader you were as no, a kid. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you were as a kid, so you yeah. knew where to send this. You knew the names as did we you all send did. Did you send it to Jim Shooter? I did. I sent it to Jim Shooter. Yeah, I did, actually. What he said? He liked it. I mean, that's how he, that's how he got his that start, right? That was the right? thing, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I know, I know uh, you know, for people who don't know, Jim Shooter is, is, is kind of a, a polarizing character in the world, the world of comics, and some people had very good experiences, some people had very bad. He started out when he was about 13 years old as, as uh, supporting his family by writing comics, and he had, a, he had a, a soft spot for kids trying to do this. So he actually, he called me and said, you know, and, oh, yeah, I remember it was on the answering machine. I literally <laughs> fell over when I, I was lying on the ground. I heard this What's point. an answering machine? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I know. This is really awful. Um, you know, the other day I, I, I uh, referred to my iPhone as a Walkman. <laughs> it's all about humbling over and over again, humbling. So I, I, uh, I, I went, when I was in New York next with my family, I, 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 went, I went for like an hour to Marvel's office, and he took out the, the newest issue of The Avengers. It was still uh, George Perez's pages, inked by, I think, Pablo Marquez. It was issue 170, I remember. And he walked me through page by page how it worked. You know, this happens. Every page, there should be, the story has to move forward, and you, know, and you should learn enough about science to start faking it. And he told me to stop reading comics for a while and start reading. He said, read, you know, read John Updike, read... You know, things like that. Learn science and come back in five years. Five and years? <laughs> Wait, yeah. <Wow. laughs> Let's talk about that. So did you take that advice? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and look where you are now. <laughs> well, I mean, I discovered, I discovered other writing. Mm-hmm. And also, and uh, comics were interesting to me, but they got less and less. And I, I was at a boarding school. And really, it was, it was in access. I didn't have access to the latest issues all the time, but I had, you know, access to science fiction. You know, I was reading. Yeah, what was the stuff you discovered? Oh, God. Uh, and this is, we're going to get to this for all of you, so. The nine, right. you know, nine Princes in Amber. Oh, yeah. You know. I don't even know what that is. Uh, I'm not that kind of nerd, sorry. Dude. <laughs> yeah. We just, I just, we, they're on audiobook. The first two books in that series are on audiobook read by Roger Zelazny. Really? And he reads them really well. We listen to them on two really long car trips, though. My <laughs> kids and I, we love them. They, they still are just as great as you remember. Are they? Oh, that's mm-hmm. good, yeah. I mean, I, I know that they, you know, again, you know, they're up and down and everything yeah. like that. But, I, uh, but I, was, I was interested because I'd had such good experience. I wrote Roger Zelazny a letter, you know, and asked him how things worked. And he, he sent me a really nice little tiny postcard back wow. of how all these, how Amber worked. Um, And and I think, you know, there's a direct line to the stuff you write today from those early influences, as there usually is, you know, for all of us. Um, Do you recall any of the other stuff that you discovered around that time? Yeah, the the absolute gateway drug for me was Robertson Davies' Fifth Business, Mm -hmm. which uh, is about... uh, the man to whom nothing ever happens. But it, it was told, uh, one of the things I loved about it was it was set in a small town in 1908 in Canada. It seemed really, really realistic. And it was, he just made everything up. He just, he just made up dates, made up places, and took his own childhood and plugged it in. And it had this voice of authority behind it that I really liked. Plus there was a magician in the background. <laughs> so, yeah, that worked for me. Couldn't have been influential. Um, good, we'll get back to that. Um, Eric, let's talk about some of the early stuff you were into. What do, what do you think is the makeup of 
what comes out of you, writing-wise. Right. <laughs> um, writing-wise? Because I was writing, but I was, but I was mostly write in conjunction with, with drawing. I, yeah. The writing stuff that I did was always, like, for school. Mm-hmm. And it would be, like, I always worked at this, did the school newspaper and would write, like, fake Dear Abby kind of things. <laughs> and, fake, and, it was, and it was always, like, me just, just being a goof. Where and, did you grow up? Uh, Mendocino, California. Okay. So mostly, we moved around a lot. Uh, was, but, but you weren't one of these, you know, art kids for whom writing was kind of a drag. Uh, no, I liked, I liked, liked both. Okay. But... Um, but I knew that in comics there was always a list of guys, mm-hmm. and so I kind of thought, well, I'm going to be, I, I want to be the artist guy on that list. So I kind of wanted at some point to work with a real writer, but mm-hmm. as a kid, I, di- I didn't do that. I only, I only had myself. Um, I started drawing my own comics for my own entertainment in fourth grade. Wow. What, what kind of stuff was it? Savage Dragon. Really? Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. So it's the same crap that I'm doing. There's no. I, Stick with it, everybody. It's the same. I mean, it was wretched, but it was, you know, and it got better. But I did like a bunch of them. I did like 60 comics that were never published. So there was a bunch of it. And I'm curious. I want to step back for just a sec. At what point did you become aware, or do you remember the material with which you became aware? that these were stories that were told by people. I mean, obviously, you were reading comics and you saw the list. Yeah, but I saw the names. the idea that, that people were making these, do you remember the early names that jumped out at you or even the comics or stories that jumped out at you? Well, it was what... My, see, my dad bought comics when he was a kid, mm-hmm. so we, those were, like, the first comics we had were all, like, 1940s, 1950s comics. Mm-hmm. He bought comics starting when he was a little kid up until they stopped making comics for him. So he, sure. he segued from the superhero stuff into EC Comics, and then when EC Comics stopped publishing altogether, he was like, all right, nothing for me. <laughs> I'm not going back to Batman for crying out loud. So he was done, and Captain Marvel Adventures had ended, and, and all the comics that he were into were, were over. So it was like, all right, I guess i got to grow up now. <laughs> um, and so we, we had that, and he would often years later point to things at the wall in the comic stores and go, I used to have that. Mm-hmm. You woke up with that wrapped around your face when you went to sleep, you know? <laughs> and we would just read those things till they were coverless and, and just destroyed tons and tons of his comics. But we that's what we grew up with. We grew up with those. And then uh, then I discovered that there were there were comic books. They're, they're still making these things. And I started reading just whatever I could get my hands on. It was mostly Marvel comics, and so I started with The Hulk and then <laughs> discovered Jack Kirby, who was over at DC Comics on Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth, <laughs> the greatest comic ever published. I agree. And then, uh, yeah, you keep going from there. I can't get better than that. And so I just, I just got into it and I started reading that stuff, but I started writing and drawing my own comics just as a little kid and just... I'm just going for it, man. And then you broke in as an illustrator, as an artist, um, primarily. I self-published a comic when I was 19 with a couple other kids mm-hmm. who are not really kids. They were older than I was. But um, 
we self-published this, and then I sent it out to everybody that I could think of who might review it. And at that point, it was like the Comics Buyer's Guide and the Comics Journal and all that stuff. And a couple people didn't mention it in their columns. And then there were some guys who wanted to start up their own comics, and they they bought it through the mail from us, and then they contacted me and said, well, you, you've got a wrist. Let's put you to work. And, um, and so I got some real early work then at age 19 doing um, a book called Megaton. I did a character called Vanguard that was in there. And then sort of once I'd gotten that, it was one thing kind of led to another. All the, all the while, I was corresponding with Jim Shooter. He was too Who would give me a close but no cigar when I would send him stuff. And then eventually I met... Were you, uh, let me just stop you for one sec right. to, to uh, get specific on that. Were you sending stuff to... He was at Marvel at the time. He was at Marvel. I was sending him, I was sending him sample pages. It would be... You know, at that point, I learned, oh, yeah, you're supposed to draw them bigger? What the hell? <laughs> you know, because I was drawing an 8.5 by 11 paper folded in half and stapled up the side. <laughs> and it was like, well, that's not right. You know, you eventually found out, oh, no, you draw them big. And then, Did they have their guidelines published yeah, at that time? Yeah, there was time? something. There's the uh, How to Draw Comics, the Marvel Way was out, and it was like, oh, wow, look at this, all this information I didn't know. So I would do sample pages and send it off to them, and he would say, no, that's no good. But then <laughs> but the other people were, were giving me a break, and eventually I, um, I bumped into him at a convention, and it was in Chicago. And I had this stack of original art at that point because I'd been doing it for a little while. And he saw it, and, I, and he was like, so you're a professional now? And I said, yes, I am. <laughs> and then he said, how would you like to do a story for Marvel Fanfare? Which was like a big deal. But what I didn't know is that Marvel Fanfare was code for how would you like to do an inventory story that <laughs> yeah. may sit in the shelf for a couple of years before it finally shows up and embarrasses you. And what was that story? <laughs> It was a Hulk versus Thor story, which later ended up in an issue of Thor, and it ended up being scripted by Stan Lee and inked by Vinnie Coletta. So I was <clears throat> subbing for Jack Kirby in the classic <laughs> Thor creative team, you know, and wow. it was the last issue that either of those guys would work on. So, uh, But you didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that at the time. It was just... I got the Xeroxes of Vinny's inks, and I was horrified. <laughs> uh, amazing. Uh, Josh, let's talk about some early influences. What was the stuff that uh, made you say, I want to do this for a living? Or even, you know, the realization that people write stuff in books, and those are published and right. put into your eyes. Well, I think, for me, there was also always a sense that I wanted to have adventures. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be out in the world. So, like, from a young age, uh, I remember Tintin. Really? You know, this young kid reporter. And I, I remember publishing a, a newspaper for kids uh, during the summer. Uh, my, I grew up here in San Francisco, uh, but my parents split when I was pretty young, and my dad moved down to L.A. And so during the summers, I'd be with him, but he would still go to work. And so I would go to work with him, and there was a photocopier, and there were pens, and there were paper clips, yep. and all sorts of fun things, you know? And so I 
publish this daily newspaper in an office with no kids. And I was, I remember being kind of lonely that nobody was reading my newspaper. And I would try to get my dad, the people in the office to read it, but they weren't interested. And I thought it was really, I loved the idea of doing movie reviews by kids for kids. Um, but I, because I didn't go to school in L.A., I didn't know any kids. So uh, <laughs> it was kind of sad in a way, but also... <laughs> I guess I was left on my own a lot, and, and that was good, too, because I was able to just kind of create my own imaginary world. Uh, my, one thing my dad did that, that I appreciated was there was a bookstore. We, he lived in Los Feliz at the time, and there was a crown bookstore. I think it was next to, like, a Craig and Auto Parts, uh, and it was just a miserable, sad little bookstore. It just happened to be near the house. He would take me there and say, you can buy one book, uh, and I think it was maybe a week or something like that, and the bookstore was so sad that it only had how-tos and self-helps, but it did have one little section of classics, and I wasn't interested in the self-help, obviously, and I wasn't interested in the how-tos, but the classics, I was like, well, I'll give it a try, and I remember reading The Count of Monte Cristo and just being, whoa, that's what a book can be. Mm-hmm. That was how, just How old were you at this time? I was young. I was, you know, Yeah, that's 10, a tough book. You know? Interesting. Uh, and, I, and I've re- reread it a number of times over the years, and it just still gets me. What is it about that book that, that hits you? You know, the, the drama, the emotion, the, that he's abandoned and all is lost, and he comes back and he creates this massive, um, you know, plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just extraordinary to me. And when you started writing... Uh, on your own, yeah. was this something that you, you know, were using as a template or an inspiration, or no, what was the kind of stuff you were writing? I haven't thought much about those early writings, mm-hmm. but when I uh, now I'm listening to you guys thinking about it, and you know, the the first uh, book that I wrote uh, was about uh, a traveler in India, in southern India, who gets involved in the underworld, and it was based. I had actually done some traveling there, and I had done some kind of exploration of that, and so it was repertorial in a way, Interesting. Uh, and it was based on those experiences. Yeah. Um, so I think that... But it also had that sense of adventure that and adventure. that sense of place that, that yep. uh, Monte Cristo had. That's yeah. very interesting. So, um, um, do you remember anything else from around that time that, that jumped yeah, out? Yeah, I mean, I, in college, I, had, I wrote my, I wrote an undergraduate thesis on the heart of darkness, and so mm-hmm. that also, I think... Uh, I also like the absurdity. Something about absurdity has always Mm -hmm. captured me. Um, The idea of things not being exactly fitting with the way they should be. Um, And I know maybe that uh, Heart of Darkness doesn't necessarily suggest that at the top, but the idea of Kurtz uh, being the the perfect product of the Western civilization and now being lost in the jungle struck me as that. Uh, Michael, let's go back to you. We haven't talked about influences. Uh, do, do you have a list? I feel like you must well, have a list. I mean, it's funny just sitting here and listening to these guys talking. It's clear that there actually is a recipe for making a nerd because I mean, I'm just—I mean, I'm, there's so many touch points and, and points of similarity. I, my my dad. Um, Grew up loving comic books, reading comic books, while he didn't hold on to any of the comic books that he had read as a kid growing up in New York in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s. Um, he, when I came of age as a comic reader in about 1970, that was at a period where, particularly at DC Comics, they were 
busily just dredging up everything they had in their vaults and packaging them to these 100-page oh, super yeah. spectaculars, right? <laughs> so there would just be, they, it was like an economics thing where you could charge less for the book if it was bigger and it would seem like this great deal. And you say, look, you get these 100 pages for 25 cents um, instead of one of those skimpy little ones for 20 cents. And, um, but then they needed something to actually put in those 100 pages. And so they would typically have one news story. It might be really short or maybe not even any news stories. And the whole thing would just be reprints so that I, w- I was, like Eric, I was reading the same co- comics that my dad had grown up reading. And he would read them too. And, and it was a, I had this sense of continuum between his childhood and my childhood and the pop culture of his childhood. And, that, and it, it created this sort of larger interest for me in all the pop culture from his childhood. So I wanted to know about the movies that he loved as a kid and the books that he read and um, even just the games that he played growing up in Brooklyn and the whole kind of world of, of his childhood um, became increasingly alive to me to the degree that eventually you know, I felt like as an adult, I wanted to write a book that would sort of be set in that world, and it became the book The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is also a lot about comic books. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a... I think a lot of people... It's, a, it's sort of a more familiar, common story to hear someone say how they kind of, um, in their loneliness and isolation, uh, they learned to love these things that were sort of not appreciated by other people. And that was definitely true... For me and, and my counterpart to what Josh was saying about his newspaper was I tried to start a comic book club in Columbia, Maryland, where I grew up. And um, I persuaded my mom to help me fund this. And she bankrolled me to the tune of $25 to rent this room in the community center. And I put an ad in the newspaper in the town. And I had like I wrote a newsletter and I typed it up really laboriously. If you, anybody can remember what it was like trying to get like columns on a typewriter. <laughs> and like sections and stuff like that. It took me forever and I photocopied them and I went and I had this table and I sat there in this room and I had a sign and 9 a.m., doors open, we're going to have this thing and nobody came. Nobody came. And then one, at one point, this like this sort of accordion door that made the room bigger or smaller had been closed so it would be a small room, which I still couldn't fill. And... Um, it kind of creaked open and this little boy like my age stuck his head in the door and I was like yeah you know over here like I'm ready and then his mom kind of leaned in and she took stock of you know what was happening here in this room and she just like like John Houston at the end of Chinatown she just like covered his you know like just get him out of here before he's tainted by these this uh so, I mean, I did feel isolated, and it was much easier to feel isolated as a fan in those days when you couldn't just automatically get into huge flame wars over, you know, which season of Buffy is the, the best or whatever. But I did have this person in my house in the form of my father who was a huge fan of many things, um, from old movie serials to Star Trek to... Uh, you know, Ray Milan in The Man with the X-Ray Eyes. And, I mean, just because of that, I, there, I did, I, I, ha- I always had the sense of a kind of very small community um, that was always a source of 
strength and encouragement to me when maybe I started to feel a little more isolated and, and lonely. This is an interesting world to me, I guess, and it came up recently. We're spinning off this podcast into a Nerdist Comics panel as well, and were you guys aware of the stigma attached to comic books or science fiction or these kind of niche or genre things uh, when you were growing up and getting into them? I think it was just one more stigma among many others. <laughs> Look, you know, when, you know, when you're picked, not just picked last for softball, but they, they offer to just let you sit on the bench after the kid with one eye has already been picked, you know, and so the, you know, the kid with the head on backwards and all that stuff, right? you know, you know, it's really, it's really, it's, it's the comics thing is just, well, at least I can go down to the comic shop once a week and, you know, feel like a connoisseur, you know. Interesting. But no, I think that, was I think. Was there a comic shop, though? Yeah. Uh, well, that, that was my next question. Columbus, Columbus I Avenue. I to Rexall Drug in well, Fort Bragg, sure. Mendocino is a small yeah, town, right. too. nothing there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but did you have others with whom to talk about this? I mean, Michael, hearing that you had this with your dad, at least that was there, and I had that too, but did you have others with whom to relate about comic books and superheroes and things? Not at all. It, really? I did eventually, but when we moved down to Mendocino, um, we moved into this, this town. We moved up Albion Ridge Road, and we had just bought a 13-acre hunk of land out in the woods, and there was nothing. We just pulled into this hunk of land, and we were by parents or hippies or whatever. And there was like, and they're like, "Well, kids, we're home." And it's like, "No." Was there a house? There was no house, nothing. So they were, we were like in this big like orange bus, which is sort of looks like a orange UPS van, and which my dad had turned into like this crazy hippie camper. And we just pulled into the woods, and it was like, okay, we're going to build our little crazy plastic hippie house, and then we're going to eventually build a real house. But for that summer, it was like, you're on your own, kids. You're in the woods, and you're screwing around. You're doing whatever the hell you're doing. Wow. And so did they I ever build a the real house? We did eventually build a real house and then immediately sold it. <laughs> it was like, this is the saddest thing in the world. <laughs> I was doing that in Pacific Heights. That was the difference. <laughs> right, we're surrounded by people, and yet, yeah, no, I was just, I was just thinking about like the the kind of the ways the nerds go and everything. That I was, I was in a, I was in a school that I didn't really have any friends, and I was like, you know, going and reading my comics and hoping I had someone to talk to. And this one Monday morning, I remember this really clearly. Everybody, pretty much in the class, had been invited over to this one kid's house to watch a movie that was in progress that they were making, and they came back with stills, and it was Star Wars. And it was, uh, it was uh, one of the kids in our class was Gio Coppola at the time. And so I was thinking, I would like to watch that movie. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> no Star Wars for you. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> I was into Dungeons and Dragons. Well, now we're getting into right, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about stigma. It, it took 30 minutes for that to come out. But yeah. But luckily, I went to a. A very new school here mm -hmm. in San Francisco, which isn't so new now, but San Francisco Day School. And there were only eight kids in the class, mm -hmm. and one of them was uh, my stepbrother, so it was like 25% of the class. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my, my mother didn't remarry until I was 10, so before 10, I was, I was kind of at a loss because nobody I knew was into Dungeons and Dragons, but D&D, &D, 
I don't know if you know this, they make single-player games. Oh, of course they do. Yes. <laughs> Where you roll the dice, and then you like you could pretend to go to the other side, oh, and then Dungeon and Dragon, Dungeon and Dragon. Yeah. And Pixar short. And then it's just, it, it takes a lot of <laughs> it takes a lot of willpower when you roll the dice, and it's not the way you want it to be. To be like, oh, you know, and like you got to go with it, you know. Sometimes if, I, if my character was going to die, I would roll again. <laughs> Who's going to tell? And then when my when I got when my stepbrother moved in, I was like, awesome! And he, I don't think he cared about Dungeons and Dragons, but I was so excited about it that I think he got excited about it. And for a good while, we were both into it. So that was a good solution. At the end. <laughs> um, I want to talk about uh, before because I, I know these guys are going to ask about it. Um, working in different media, you know, you guys have all kind of had successes and, and dabbled in various media. Um, and Josh, let's start with you. I'm, I'm curious specifically about the differences in the approach to writing uh, a, a, an article for a magazine uh, versus, you know, a, a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, I've only written one published book, and it was essentially, it was nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So to me, it didn't feel that different. It was you know, the book started with arm wrestling, and I didn't intend to write a book. Yeah, obviously, I was just arm wrestling. Uh, <laughs> and what, what, what was interesting to me at the time was, like, I realized at the end of, of the, the world championship that I wasn't going to go any further as an arm wrestler. Like, I'd kind of maxed out, <laughs> and I might as well retire. Uh, but the idea of going off and having these adventures was exactly what I loved doing and had already started to change my life. Like getting a check to write this story was amazing as opposed to sitting and, and typing numbers into a computer. Uh, and so the book became, I mean, it, was, it happened later, but I just started going off and having these adventures. I became a bullfighter in Mexico and Spain for a while. Uh, and that then when the war in Iraq was, looked like it was going to happen... Uh, I talked to the the guys at Wired about writing a sidebar on their coverage uh, of the war. And they said, what, we don't actually have anybody going to the war. I said, send me. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, you don't have any credentials, and you don't know what you're doing. And I said, but I fought bulls, you know. <laughs> what, what, more, what better credential could you have? And they sent me. So uh, you were embedded for Wired? I was a unilateral. Because it was too late in the game, I had missed the embed process, and so they just bought me a ticket to Kuwait City. And when I got there, I said, holy shit, I should have a flak jacket. And so I, I called my editor, and they tried to FedEx one to me, but I got caught up in customs, and the war was starting. I was like, screw it, I'm going in. Wow. And um, I, got, I ended up with this unit, uh, and they didn't have a flak jacket, but they gave me a helmet. <laughs> they had a spare helmet, and so that ended up this weird kind of series of thoughts when people started shooting like what <laughs> put the helmet or <laughs> I could only protect this much space. <laughs> and I was in a truck most of the time so uh, I was trying to figure out okay I've got the door here and the window here so uh, anyway the the question as to writing a book versus uh, an article uh you know, nonfiction is is about reporting and then getting it down on the page. So I, I, there is obviously an art to it. Um, sometimes what I'll do though is I'll I'll read fiction. You know, I'll, I'll read what these guys do, and 
and try to kind of soak up some of that artistry. But I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know, there's a breadth to a book, mm -hmm. uh, even, even a nonfiction book, uh, that you can't, you can't tackle in an article. And an article seems to be a sort of boiling down yeah. of, to, to really the, the barest essentials that you can give while still having some artistry to it. Um, talk about that balance a little bit. Is do you approach them differently? Yeah, I mean it's annoying sometimes when magazine editors say, "Oh, you know, you only have six thousand words," mm -hmm. and that's even in today. It's a relatively long article yeah. in many magazines. Yeah. Um, you know, the last story I wrote here at Wired was nine thousand in the magazine, mm -hmm. and we that's ran good. it as a, an ebook at thirteen thousand. Mm -hmm. um, and so most of my stories for most of my stories tend to run long, relatively in the magazine world. Um, and I like that idea of almost kind of the jewel box, this beautiful little glimpse into a world. I think that's exciting. In that's interesting, too, that technology has allowed you to create these variations. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That's right. fantastic. You're writing at the right time. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael, let's talk about uh, various media. Uh, you've written comic books, you've written uh, film, you've written novels. Uh, how do you approach these different things, or is there a difference in the approach? Um, yes, they're all very different, and um, I feel much more, for a very long time, I felt much more comfortable writing fiction than writing anything else, and I started writing, doing screenwriting um, under the incredibly mistaken notion that I would be able to make a lot of money by doing it, um, like a lot of money. I thought I would just write a screenplay and sell it for a million dollars, and that would pay for the child that my wife and I were about to have. Um, and so I wrote this, what I thought was a screenplay. Um, and Was this an original screenplay? Yeah, it was an original screenplay. And um, even though, in hindsight, I can see that it was not a real screenplay, it, had, it, it was flawed in so many different ways. Um, Let, let's talk about those ways, though, sure. because it's, there's a yep. difference in the language of writing It was way too long. Uh -huh. Way, way too long. How long was it? Like 135 That's pages. Way, but way no, but for this kind of story, it should have been like 108. What kind of story was it? It was, it was about two guys. I read this article about uh, how, on, I, don't, I assume this is still true, on cruise ships, um, which are heavily... Um, uh, trafficked by old ladies, um, there are never enough dance partners to go around because there just simply aren't as many old men around as there are old ladies. So they have these guys called gentlemen hosts who are on hand to be dance partners for the single older women, um, and they are, tend to be older men themselves. And I just got interested, and I just and I wrote this story about these two guys who sign on to be gentleman hosts on this cruise ship, and, but it's like this seventh-rate uh, cruise ship. It's like the, you know, the producers of cruise ships, and, um, and they're, they're seventh-rate dancers, so it's totally fine, but um, I put a lot of detail, way more detail into it than anyone should ever put into a screenplay, and, um, but uh, producer, Scott Rudin, the producer, got a hold of it, and he optioned it, in spite of the fact that it was nowhere, in no kind of shape at all. And then he really put me through school uh, and paid me to do it because he just kept ordering draft after draft after draft after draft. And I wasn't making anywhere even remotely close to a million dollars. Um, 
And you were doing all of them. But I was doing all of you know, these drafts, I mean, maybe 11 or 12 drafts wow. of the script. And suddenly it started to feel like a movie to me. And I could, I could, and I think he could too, imagine it actually working as a script. Um, and then right as we were sort of finally getting it into a good shape, um, the second in the um, Grumpy Old Men series of films was put into production and it was about those guys going on a cruise ship as dance partners for <laughs> ladies and that was just it for, for that. But um, even after that experience and learning kind of how to write a script, I really didn't, I wasn't, still wasn't that good at it, but I, I kept doing it because it does pay enough and it, even more than that, it was the health insurance that you get, right. which is, <laughs> I needed and is hard to get if you're a writer. And so um, I did it for the health insurance, and I kept doing it. And I was in this actually ideal position as a screenwriter because I really thought of it as a second kind of writing to me, and my fiction writing was my, always going to be my main thing. And so I could sort of maintain this, oh, who cares attitude toward the notes I was getting and that kind of stuff. And then the more I did it and the better I got at it, the more I started to care <laughs> and that's when they had me. Right. Yeah. It was like then it was, I was just fucked because now I think I do a, I think I do a really good job and I think I know I know better than most of the people I'm talking to now what's good and I have to like knuckle under and <laughs> do these stupid things they want me to do and I do them and I feel bad about myself and it gets you know and now and now all the things I had promised myself I wasn't going to care about I really care way too much. So I'm screwed. Um, <laughs> well, and it's hard to work on something, you know, in any medium and not care about it. Yes, but it's so good if you can manage it. It's so, it's so much safer. Um, and they don't have any power over you. Does um, that make you not want to do it now? What's, what's the solution? Um, Sometimes, yes. <laughs> you know, I worked on this movie that came out this year. Yeah, we still do need the health insurance. I worked on this movie that came out this year called John Carter. Um, that, oh, that, Hold your applause. That guy saw it. That guy saw it. Um, I that, saw it. Oh, thumbs up from this guy. Thank you. It cost $250 million, which is essentially the only thing anybody knew or needed to know about it to pass judgment on it. Um, and so, um, you know, it was... I worked very hard on that, and I felt like I was part of this great team that included Andrew Stanton, the director, and Mark Andrews, a co-writer, and he was a storyboard artist, and the guy who went on to direct Brave at Pixar. And, and I mean, it was just a fantastic project, and I thought we made a great movie, and it just completely... It, I mean, it is now well, so legendary much. turkey now. Exactly. Yeah, it's like Ishtar. It's mentioned with Heaven's Gate and Ishtar, <laughs> um, which is not, not only, like, not what I thought would happen to that movie because I thought we did a good job, but also just so not... It's really not a form of encouragement, let's say. <laughs> let's put it that way. Getting back to your question. Um, I don't know. I'm doing this project at HBO now, hopefully, and, and you, one does have the sense that there is a little more willingness to take chances. I mean, when you're, anytime you're working on a movie that's so expensive as most movies are nowadays, it's really hard to take, to feel... S to feel like you could take a chance on something that's going to be where your stockholders are going to be wanting to know what happened to their $250 million. So, um, you know, and, and we're in TV now. There does seem to be a lot more chance-taking and what the heck. And if it's a setup like HBO where they're subscriber-based and they don't have to worry about advertisers, you're, you know, 
I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I, out of my own curiosity, how long have you been working on this HBO project? Uh, about a year now. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to skip over to Eric for a moment. And then we'll come back to you. <laughs> we'll come back to you, Glenn. Yeah. I was going to tell you how humbled I am. And now, <laughs> don't have to do it. Um, I know you've got a story, so I want to come back to you. Um, <laughs> uh, but Eric, talk to us a little bit about your um, adapting of Savage Dragon to adapting other media. To other, to other mediums? Yeah. Well, the I'm thing curious. Is, I mean, getting back to just the difference between writing stuff mm-hmm. is that when you're, when you're doing prose writing, there is, and you flip that page, there is never a chance that as a reader you're going to look over there and go, oh, look at that, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh. But when, you're, when you flip the page and it's comic books, there's always that you're, it's, it's an unlike any other medium where you're exposed to a hu- huge amount of scenes all taking place at the same time. And so it's suddenly it's like, oh, the Red Skull's showing up over here. And it, you're, you know, you're just eyes attracted to this bright red object in the lower right-hand corner. And so just as a guy doing this stuff, it, it became really clear to me that if you're writing comic books, you really need to keep in mind that these are pages that are being flipped and that you've got to kind of play to the play to where things are, are flipping. So it's like you're, you're building to a, to a mini, like, something's going to happen to be continued moment on your right-hand page, and then when you flip it over, it, the payoff better be in the upper left-hand corner because if you've got something important going on in the other part, it's, it's, a, it's a visual distraction. So you really have to kind of pace it in such a way that it's just, bam, here. I want to keep the, the reader flipping, but I don't want them to get going someplace that I don't want them to go. Yeah, you're writing 11 cliffhangers. Or yeah, you're writing 12, 11 cliffhangers or whatever it is. I generally tend to try and go to end every page with something of a, this is going to happen. But there's also, in a movie, if you're talking and you're interrupted because something's big suddenly comes crashing through the wall, that, that works in a, in a movie. If you're doing that in a comic as your right-hand page and somebody suddenly is interrupted, as a reader, you go, oh, this guy's not finishing his sentence. I'll bet something's going to happen. <laughs> and so I'm very aware of that because you never are reading it where I'm thinking of dot, 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 going to the store and getting some tickets, you know? What the hell? I was expecting a monster. What? This is the monster at all. He's just going to the grocery store. You know? And so just when you're writing all this, this various kinds of things, there is just a whole different group of rules that you kind of need to be aware of when you're doing stuff. You know, you're writing television, you're sitting there going, okay, well, I'm playing to... There's a commercial break. I'm building to a climax. Get to the commercial break, and then it's like, okay, well, what happens after that? There was that moment where it looked like he was in deep shit, and suddenly it's like you, you, you know, the ad just builds that home. Oh, what's going to happen? And then you, and then you get that the payoff. Um, you know, there's just a lot of different aspects that go to it, and with comics, there's also a very there's very limited real estate. In, in a, when you're writing a book, you can just go, you know what, I'm going to describe this, and it's going to be 
brilliant, <laughs> you know? And it's just, I got 25 I'm just going to go into so much detail and so many words just talking about the texture of this guy's teeth is going to be a page and a half. And it's like, you can do that in prose. In comics, it's like, you can't do that. Everything's got to be very succinct, very cut down to the, just the very barest stuff, or else you're sitting there with, with somebody with this huge block of copy over their head. Mm -hmm. And in comics... You know, when you're opening a book, it's like page after page of copy. It's like, well, I expect that. In comics, when you open it up and there's a panel where Nick Fury is underneath this <laughs> balloon that's three quarters of the page, it's like, I don't want to read that. Look at all that. When is he going to punch somebody? <laughs> well, there's also the balance of telling a story visually. Yeah. You know, well, there's, that, you, there's you, that as well. You don't need to describe anything. You can just flat out show it. You know, but just in terms of you know writing different stuff, you really not need to be aware of the format and what you can do. You know, you're writing a newspaper article. You lead with what's the most important stuff. Okay, lady die, she's dead. Okay, <laughs> starting off with this, and then it's like, well, how did that happen? It's sort of the opposite of a mystery. It's like she's dead. We know he did it. Bunch of assholes. Who knew? You know? <laughs> Pretty much and how the articles went. Uh, <laughs> that was the article I read. I don't know what the rest of you are. reading different material, apparently. What, I mean, you, you worked with a number of different writers, too, as an artist. Was yes. there stuff that you latched onto when it came time to work on your own stuff? Was there you know, a, a storytelling technique or, or anything that you kind of took inspiration e from? Everybody I worked with did a completely okay. different thing. Um, some guys wrote... Uh, full script where they would describe every single page and all the dialogue and you would just go through that way. Other guys would write a plot. Um, David Michelini on Spider-Man would describe the page one and he would tell you all about this is a splash page, da da da, leave room for credits and leave room for the title and then he would go page two through twenty-two and he would just go. There would be He wouldn't break it down into pages there would be very little in terms of dialogue in it. It would just generally be five typewritten pages giving you a basic outline of this is what goes on. Go for it, man. And that can be complicated because you can, you can be like, oh, I'm drawing this big old thing here and this and there, and you get to the end and it's like, holy crap, i got two pages of script with all this stuff going on, and I've got three pages to go, and it becomes a stamp collection at the end of the book. You're just like, holy hell, what went on here? So you've you got to pace it out. Um, it's just a, and it's a great lesson. It's a, it is a great lesson. I, I worked with uh, John Byrne once on a script that he had written. It was a full script. And his was, he, it was a full script, but he didn't break it down into pages. It was just, here is my 85-panel long script. <laughs> you decide what, how many panels on each page. Up to you. Go for it, man. Which is another, like, all right, let's, let's see how this goes. And that I tried to, I was like, I'm going to put a lot of panels in the beginning so I can open up at the end. And then it was, well, this doesn't really deserve this huge amount of space, but I got nothing left to do, so what the hell? Interesting. So it's a lot of different ways of doing it, and yeah. 
you know. And, and they all work. And they and they all work, and they all end up being being books or comic books yeah. or whatever. You They're want. recognizable as comic books. Yeah. Yes, uh, Glenn. Let's talk about your. Um, Experiences writing for other media or adapting your own material to other media. Sure. Um, I just I well first I've written uh, very very unsuccessfully uh, for for Hollywood. Um, <laughs> my first uh, experience with that was uh, I wrote a script that was so bad <laughs> that the first person I showed it to decided not to marry me. <laughs> and so did you propose yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah she wasn't just like forestalling any no 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 she went out, she moved to seattle and started seeing another guy the next day <laughs> wow. what so, was this horrible script that drove away <laughs> well my friend uh this script what i did is i thought i'm, I'm gonna show you you know this is like act one right yeah. <laughs> I, Right, yes, here's, here's the throw rocks at him part mm -hmm. of it, right? So uh, I kept rewriting it. I kept showing it around to other people. I kept showing it and showing it around. And uh, I got to a place where, uh, I mean, it's, this took six years of rewriting it over and over again and trying to learn as much as I could from people's responses. So it was a romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got it to a place where actually we had half the funding lined up. Um, we had $400,000 from Germany, and we needed the other $400,000 from America, but nobody had heard of the actress we had hired, who was Hilary Swank. And <laughs> she landed on her feet. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> so so uh, we, uh, it fell apart, and it kept falling apart in a lot of different ways. But that actually got me. It was, it was a script basically about lesbian biker chips and the men who love them. Um, and uh, that got me hired uh, to, as a staff writer for Hey Arnold. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously. Yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. That was your calling card. That was, it was a weird calling card, but it seemed to appeal to animators because they also hired me at 101 Dalmatians, too. I really, I vibed with it. I liked it very much, but I saw what the, the writer's room was in the first place, and it terrified me. Um, Why? Well, it's really simple. Like, I, I, I uh, uh, was talking to the guy who, who ran the, the um, um, uh, it was Craig Bartlett, I think, who ran, who did Hey Arnold, um, uh, and... Uh, we were, he, he had like, given me kind of like an idea of the show, what it was about, and I said, well, there's one thing I really don't understand. What, who is Arnold? Like, who, what, who, what is he? Who is he? He's like, oh. And he like, took me into the room, and there was, a, there was a, one of those white dry erase boards. Which, you know what? In fiction, you don't have a dry erase boards. No, you have three-by-five cards or whatever, but you don't, have, you don't erase stuff that much. So he said, okay, in January, Nickelodeon said Arnold was feisty, forward, this, this. In February, Arnold was shy, abandoned, re rejected. I was like, oh, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is Arnold an everyman? No, he's not an everyman. That was in March, you know. He's not an everyman anymore, you know. And so you literally, he's like, just don't give him any personality. He just, he can't have one, you know. Because, and... So then, like, the first thing I said was, you know, we want to do something, Nickelodeon is like, we want to do something kids love. Okay, well, uh, Arnold joins pirates. No, kids don't like pirates. Like, so... That's true. They hate them. <laughs> I had... They call that one. Yeah, that's, that's true. So you know what they did instead? Opera. Oh, because yeah. kids, kids love, love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Keep them away from the opera. Except you can't. Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> it's just like, it's, like it's yeah. too pandering yeah. to, yeah, exactly. to like, put those two things yeah. there together. Yeah. So, no, I, I, but I, I, I really liked, I, at the same time, I'd just gotten into the UC Irvine fiction writing program, and I was really thinking this formula, which is, you know, your first readers like it, 
your agent likes it, your editor likes it, and you know maybe if sales and marketing are on, that's nice. That's like five people, and <laughs> you're done, you know, more or less. If you can really please that those five people, and that appeals to me. Bad. But I, I keep coming back to, to scripts. I really like them. I love I love movies. I love scripts, uh, and I I. Uh, I just keep humbling myself when doing it because I don't. I feel like I don't quite understand it yet, so I want to. I want to just do a good job. Well, it is like any new medium, right? You need to work that muscle. You need to understand the rules. You need to understand the language of it, uh, and it takes doing it a lot. You know, which good. Keep doing it um, very quickly, and then we'll get to questions from you guys. Um, do you outline? Yeah, I do. That's Josh, everyone. Yeah, I do outline. <laughs> what does it look like? Um, you know, in the last story I did, it's, you know, beat by beat, what's going to happen mm-hmm. and kind of what the structure of the story is. And it's on eight and a half by 11 white page. Okay. And then I staple them all together. And then as I write the story, I just flip through the pages. And about how long is that outline? Three pages usually. Okay. I mean, in the last go around. Okay. Uh, do you outline, Michael? I hate outlining. <laughs> right? It's the worst. Um, I've resist it as much as possible and I mean, it's really it's gotten to the point when I'm sort of first thinking of a project first getting the idea for something there's there's sort of two categories of ideas that are coming together and there's ideas that I know I know that I'm not going to forget that are just sort of wired into the whole way that it popped into my brain in the first place like telling the story of one man's life by checking in at him at various points in his life or something like that. And and there might be a sort of a little collection of sub-ideas around that that just are so wired into it that I, I just know I know that. And then there's the ideas that, that start popping in my head right immediately after I've come to that point, and I know I will forget those if I don't write them down. And so I don't really make an outline, but I just sort of make a pile of things that I know I want to get in here at some point or, or here's... Here's possible scenes that will help me do the thing that I think I'm trying to do here. Do you, do you jot them down longhand? Yeah, uh, no, type them. Okay. And I'll just go with something like that for as long as I possibly can, years wow. if I can, before I finally knuckle under and just realize I have to finish this book. It's six months overdue already. And um, so I'm just going to make an outline here. Okay, this chapter is going to be that. The next chapter is going to be that. And it's for me, it's a termination technique rather than an inception technique. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And the next step is obviously finishing. the writing. Oh, yes, being, yeah, finishing, <laughs> getting it done. Right. Because yeah. uh, I feel like outlining, when I try to outline something before I start, it kills mm-hmm. a lot of my interest in doing it. gets sort of like, oh, okay, done. Now, now I don't want to write it anymore. Right. It's written. It feels written. Right. You've had those. Mm-hmm. You've lived in that world. Right. You've had those thoughts. Interesting. Uh, Glenn, when you're working on prose. I, I have a friend who said that writing an outline is like putting high heels and lipstick on your embryo and putting it under a streetlight. <laughs> <laughs> so you do it. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> no, no, no. no. I, I, I have the same reaction to it. It really just kills it. It's, mm-hmm. uh, I've had to do it a couple of times, and it's just... it's. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. So do you find the story as you go, or do you have an idea when you're... Remarkably it? similar to how Michael oh, really? does things. Yeah, no, there's the stuff that I know I'm going to remember, and then there's the stuff that's just basically a couple of lines here and there, sometimes on three-by-five cards, sometimes within a big document where I just go back in and try to remember some... Well, it's funny. I, ha- I had this experience actually looking at a uh, 
Fitzgerald's uh, notebooks, like where he would write down all these different lines that he knew he was going to use. He never used any of them, apparently. And they were all like descriptions of 16-year-old girls. <laughs> yeah. In the crack-up? Is it at the end of the crack-up? Yeah, I think it's somewhere in there. It's, yeah, there's something in there that's just like, you know, it would be some amazing similes, some incredible <laughs> right. metaphor. She was a girl of about 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. if you're finding the story as you go, or if you have these ideas of chapters and you know yeah. generally where they're going to fall, do you have to write in order? I do. I go in order as as I understand the order when I'm starting, but sometimes that turns out not to be the order, and I have to rearrange things. But I I could never start at the end, if that's what you mean, which I've heard some writers do. John Irving. Really? I've heard. Uh, And Glenn, you were shaking your head. You don't go in order. No, I don't go in order. Really? No. Is it whatever you... The ending before... Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Actually, I've done that a couple of times. Actually, well, what will happen is when there's like a critical (laughs) mass... There you go. There's like a critical mass of pages. Like I know where it wants to go, and then like writing it is sort of like having a target to try to hit. Mm -hmm. So far that hasn't killed it for me. How do you decide what piece you're going to work on in any given session? Turn off the internet. Sure. Um, (laughs) um, And just really, uh, I I often will have like, if if for a long piece, I might have three or four different things like chapters, and I will read something aloud to myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will try to start editing. Yeah, yeah read it loud. Huh? <laughs> it's like, holy crap, that was terrible. <laughs> All right, let's, let's get to questions from you guys. I'm sure you have them. I um, do outline, by the way. You do an outline. This, this man outlines. Wait, you said you uh, sit down and sketch. Oh, okay. I don't think what happens is I'll get to a certain point, and then I'll be like, well, crap, i got to make sure this fits. You know, because it, there'll be times yeah. when you go... It's got to fit. There's got it takes. And you also you have multi-issue have, stories. Yeah. And so it's, right. you got to end on that note. And so, and generally, if I'm doing a plot, which I do sometimes, is I'll just be <laughs> one page, one through twenty, just a little sentence mm-hmm. every page, just bam, 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 bam. Mm-hmm. And then you just oh, so it's not all the crackpot way that you described earlier. No, but it can be. It often yeah. is. So often it'll be like I've r- drawn sixteen pages. The hell, am I gonna? <laughs> I got four to go for crying out loud. This is gonna work. Well, here's all the story then. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's so it's madness. I'll tell you, it is madness. Uh, well, you've also been at this same character for how long? Fifteen years? Oh, quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you but you know this Seven guy. Dragon at this point yeah. is twenty-one years. Wow. I mean, you and, know this guy inside and, then, and out. You and know what kind of including story. when I was a little kid and did right. Savage Dragon <laughs> stuff. Then. Do you ever draw on that stuff? Um, no, because it's so terrible. It's just so bad. And it's really weird because you're inventing the character as, as it goes along. So, like, Savage Dragon, when he started, was a Batman ripoff. Mm-hmm. And you look at him now and you go, there's no Batman there. There's nothing about Batman. He's a green dude with a fin on his head. How is that Batman? But at one point he had a, a mask hole, and that was a mask. Instead of the two years, he had the fin, and it was like, all right, I'm fighting crime. Here we go. <laughs> um, all right, let, I'm sure you guys have questions. Uh, two rules when we do questions from the audience. Please keep your questions somewhat general. We have four awesome writers here. They should all or each be able to answer it. Um, the second rule, well, okay, there are three rules. The second rule is uh, questions begin with a W or an H, not with an I. Uh, and the third rule is I will come to you and you will speak into the microphone, but do not touch the microphone. All right? <laughs> <laughs> Who has a question? Generally speaking, uh, 
how many different projects are you working on at a given point, and what are the differences between those projects in terms of scope? You know, is it two big ones, two two books, one article, six books? You know, what's your workload look like? Good question. Uh, start. Um, well, it's never been more than three things at once. It kind of de- depends on how you define working on. Um, <laughs> if, if you define working on as meaning owe to your publisher, um, then it's about three. Uh, that I might be writing a novel that I've had underway for a while and then get sidetracked by a short story or screenwriting work and then suddenly remember that I agreed to do a thing for Gourmet Magazine, um, an article for Gourmet Magazine. So then technically, I'm working on three things at once because I start writing the Gourmet Magazine article, but I also have to finish the screenplay, and I have that novel going on. But actually, I'm still really only working on the Gourmet article. Do you find Um, it difficult to shift gears when you're working on these different things? No, not normally. No, not at all. Mm -mm. It's just just sort of drop right into whatever. Unless it's not going well. Then then that's its own kind of difficulty. Right. Uh, Josh, what about you? I'm always, I've got like a list of maybe 25 stories that I'm chasing, but when I write one, then I just am exclusive to that. I'm reporting it, I come back and I write it, and that's I try to make that all I think about. Glenn? Uh, I only... I can only really work on one thing at a time, uh, but there'll be, I'll have some downtime sometimes where I will like try to generate ideas and will find myself just sort of skipping from thing to thing, but really just one. And, and does it consume you? I mean, is it the kind of thing where... Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Eric? I got all kinds of stuff going on. I don't, I don't know. Because um, Savage Dragon is ongoing, so it's, I mean, I'm always writing, drawing that particular issue. But there's always letters, pages that need to be done. There's always articles that need to be written. There's just, I'm working on a screenplay, which is just kind of poking along really slowly and has nothing to do with any of this stuff at all. And then um, just stuff comes up. There's other characters that I want to develop. There's other stuff that will be, you want to ink this cover or draw this cover. So there's a lot of other drawing work. And then people will constantly be like, will you write an introduction to my book or will you do this? And it's like, all right, whatever. <laughs> I got nothing to do. It's <laughs> a good distraction. Uh, other questions? Uh, hi. I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about how you generate your story ideas, go through your creative process, like how you figure out what to write about. Um, this is, thank you, that's a good question. This is the best and worst question for any writer, right? It's where do your ideas come from? <laughs> Go. They don't come from anywhere. Eric, Eric, why don't you take this? Yeah. I agree. <laughs> they don't come from anywhere. They just appear. They're just like magic. It's a guy with a briefcase. No, there's no, nobody has a briefcase and nobody has an anything. You just, it just sort of shows up and you're just like, all right, this is what I'm doing today. Yeah. How do you know? It's, it's I, like I would, listening. Yeah. It's about listening. And it's also about, you know, one of, the, one of the best explanations I heard for where stories come from was Jim Jarmusch talking about watching Die Hard. First of all, thinking about Jim Jarmusch watching Die Hard <laughs> is fantastic. And he said that he was talking about very specifically how it's the scene where 
the, the, the cops are like, uh, there's like, they're, they're about to send away for like the, the RV to come and like storm the place. And he said, he started thinking about what's happening in between. Like, what are they doing in this moment right now where they're waiting? You know, staying here, looking at the watches. So he was writing that movie in his head. He missed all the action and all that stuff. Because <laughs> what happens is your head just starts to spin. You have, you might have a, you have a, there's just something inside of you that wants to churn a story out. And that's often where, where stuff comes from. You're just like, okay, there are, these guys are fighting villains all the time. What the hell do villains do? What's their day like? Yeah. You know, let's, let's see what old Dr. Doom's spending the day. He plays a lot of solitaire, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Solitaire D&D. Ms. Pac-Man. Whoa. <laughs> I'm eating ghosts like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to wait? Uh, well, I, w- I would, I would uh, kind of alter the question to ask this. You know, how do you know the story to tell? You know, when you're sitting down, uh, and I'm speaking specifically to Michael and Glenn, when you guys are sitting down to tell a story, how do you find that story? How do you know this is the story to tell? How do those choices get made? Or do you even, you know, are you reflexive like that? Does that take something away if you start to uh, examine it? I am... I don't really think I start with the story so much as the world um, that the book is going to take place in, which is by which I mean a combination of the setting, the time period, the milieu, the and then once you once you've sort of got a sense of that, then the people who would have been around or would be around or are around in that kind of milieu, those are going to be your, the, the the pool from which you can draw characters. So, who are the possible denizens of this world and and then maybe having figured that stuff out sometimes which sometimes is stuff you know just in it you get it you just know it all in a second and you're ready to go and sometimes you have to do a lot of research before you can start to get answer some of those questions who would have been around at this point that i could maybe draw on to create a character um uh a lot of times I get an idea, not not for the story, again, not for the story that I want to tell or anything having to do with the characters or, or the setting at all, but just I'll read something by somebody else and notice some cool, interesting, technical trick, a way of presenting a dialogue that I've never tried before. Or um, Can you think of specific Well, like examples? I just recently read... Um, this wonderful novella by Dennis Johnson called Train Dreams. And um, he, in this 113 pages, he tells the story of, entire story of a man's life in 113 pages, and he does it in this very, in a way that when you're done, you feel like you got it, you got it all. Um, and I, in reading that, I thought, I'd, I'd like to try that. Like, I would like to see if I can tell one person's life in a very short amount of pages and yet feel like I'm doing it justice and really, I wonder if I could do that. And so I'm trying. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, is that about the gist of it? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking, actually this, this, this might answer some other sort of things too. I was just thinking, well, I was thinking about this, which is that, you know, uh, the other medium, I've, I've, I've just dabbled very slightly in comic books and it was actually Michael who got me into it, which was uh, when they were doing the, Dark Horse was doing The Escapist. 
thought it was a fantastic idea because I really liked the world of Cavalier and Clay. And I really liked, I mean, the, th the chapter that when I got to the Antarctica chapter, I was looking at that and thinking, how the hell did that happen? Like, how, how, how did that brain work that made that world? And I really sort of wanted to participate in it in a way. And getting a chance to do that, well, at the same time, I thought, well, I'd just, you know, Mike was kind enough to call me and ask, and I was like, well, you know, only if you get Gene Colin to draw it. And it's like, you know, five minutes later, Gene's on the phone, Glenn, this is Gene. I don't know, what's, what's this story about? I don't know. I really want to do it, though. You know, so, uh, so I, it was interesting because, like, I suddenly had, I was outside of my comfort zone in a huge way because I didn't know much about, about really about writing comics, and also I wanted to create that world that would be both interesting for the escapist and then also for Gene Colan to draw, who was 82 at the time or something like that. So it was like I was trying to take what little I kind of know about the world and, 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 take, and, and give him a good story to tell. You know, do hands on a doorknob and, and German shepherds and... <laughs> cityscapes and things like that. Uh, will you talk about that doorknob? I know you told that story to oh. Acker. Oh, yeah, it's just pretty... Uh, Gene, Gene is known for two things. One is for never reading the script all the way through before he starts it. Um, and then the other is he was known as being the guy who could make a hand on a doorknob dramatic. And so he actually put it on his business card, was a hand on a doorknob. And so I scripted a splash, an entire splash that's just a hand on a doorknob. And, uh, of course, Gene didn't read the script all the way through and didn't have enough time to actually put the splash in there, so it was multiple panels of a hand on a doorknob. That's just as good. That was good. He knows, he knows how to tell stories. So, yeah. Uh, other questions? We have time for a couple more. Oh, you do. Otherwise, it won't get recorded. Yeah, I'm curious. You say you don't outline, but some of your books, so many characters, like, how do you keep them straight? I mean, do you remember it all, or do you, are you using four-by-five cards? How are you... Cavalier and Clay, Sunnyside, tons of characters. How do you keep those all straight? Uh, keeping I mean, the, Savage Dragon, you've got a universe. Yes. <laughs> I mean, keeping the characters straight's not... Probably I'm, now I'm going to start having a problem with it now that you raised it as a possibility. <laughs> I mean, usually I, I, I reread what I'm doing so frequently while I'm doing it. I will just, I'm constantly going back and starting 10 pages back, 20 pages back, 30 pages back, going back to the beginning um you know it's hard, it just doesn't come up as a problem um do you keep a list no so there's no list these are the characters that are in this yeah i mean sometimes i might forget like oh i what was the name of that store clerk on you know back in chapter three that sold him the pack of cigarettes because now i need another store clerk i'll just use that same guy and i won't remember if i called him freddie or jimmy but i'll just do a you know search for store clerk and find his name. <laughs> well, there is a thing where you're sort of living in that world, right? And you're you know you're meeting these characters over and over. Yeah, no, exactly. It's just your. It would be like. I mean, yes, I admit. At my kids' school, sometimes I have a hard time remembering the other parents' names and <laughs> stuff. So maybe this isn't a great example. But I mean, usually, sort of in your world of people who are important to you, it's not a problem keeping track of who they are and what their marital relations are and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, there is a point sometimes where I like have enough pages where I will make three-by-five cards for people, and then they go. Then they're gone. Once they're absorbed into the narrative, then those three-by-five cards are old news. Yeah. I've been at this 20 years, so there's like a lot, yeah. a lot of there's characters. There's a deep and, mythology. 
luckily there are other people who read this shit. And so there's like a couple really fanatical list makers. And it's like there's a Savage Dragon wiki, and I'll be like, all right, I need this. And off I go. It's really it's helpful. Like, it's so helpful. Where was he last? Oh, he's dead. Oh. I come up with a new guy. I mean, half the time I come up with new villains just because I'm like, I don't know who's dead or alive here. I'm just going to make up a new guy. <laughs> Um, very quickly, we always end with uh, what are you what are you reading? What are you watching? What is getting you inspired? What are you talking about with your friends these days? Eric, let's start with you. No, no don't do that. What What do you like these days? Are you reading comic? Any comics? Um, I kind of not reading that much. I mean, it's it's mostly mostly old stuff that I'm just into and and. Um, there's an old uh, radio show called Vic and Sade, uh, written by a guy named Paul Reimer, and he's just got a really gift for dialogue. We're just, and it's uh, a four-character radio show, and it just you're dropping in on these, these four characters. It's a husband, wife, son, and there's an amiable Uncle Fletcher, and um, and it's just really paints pictures very well with words. Has gives great names for for different characters, and and you just kind of get a sense of their neighborhood as you drop in on this small house halfway up in the next block. When's it from? It's uh, 30s, 40s. Oh. It was on for ever. Oh. And um, just what's it called? Vic and Sade. Where can we find it? Um, just Google Vic and say it's put it in, and you can find it. There's a there's a bunch of them there, but it's it's hilarious, and you just get a sense of oh well that's that character I I know what he's like, and he just does a really wonderful job, and he's and he's writes in phone conversations that are so perfect that you can have three of the characters gone and it's just one character and they're talking on the phone but their, co- their one-way conversations are so perfect that when you're done with it you go, hey, there was just one person on there. I didn't even realize that everybody else was out to lunch or whatever and it's just marvelously written. Um, generally, like very short 15-minute episodes. Um, that and just various books. I just, I'm all over the place in that. Mostly, uh, Mostly nonfiction. Uh, Anything you really sparked to lately that you want to recommend to us? I just <laughs> I just read that Marvel Comics book that everybody is I heard reading it's great. about. Is it good? It's it's there's a lot of characters. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to keep you may need of. index cards. There's a lot of there's a lot of people kind of shuffling in and out. I knew all the players, so it was like, oh, this is interesting to me. I'm kind of curious how it would be as a dry read where you don't know anybody if you just be like. This is just a mess. I don't even know what goes on here. Uh, well, let Eric know they can find him on Twitter at Eric J. Larson. Uh, Glenn, what are you reading? What are you watching on television? What are you enjoying on the stage? Um, I'm going through a bit of a... <laughs> I was about to say something about me being a bootlicker, but I didn't realize you'd be, like, fishing <laughs> at this point. Um, no, I'm, I'm just tell us what I'm, you like. I'm going through a fragmented sort of phase right now where I'm having a lot of trouble actually reading entire novels right now. But I'm reading, I'm looking at a lot of William Blake for some reason. I can't really explain why. 
but I'm finding them kind of inspirational for recharging my batteries. Same way with Linda Berry, her work I'm looking at a lot. And uh, as far as on TV, I mean, I'm eternally waiting the, the uh, return of Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm also, <laughs> I am, I'm listening to the podcast, The Thrilling Adventure Hour, pretty <laughs> relentlessly. Really? really? Yes, I am. That's nice. That's my, my current thing is I'm apprenticing myself to Acker and Blacker. So Yeah, yeah. Um, guys, I don't know when this will be out, but Valentine's Day. You're writing Valentine's Day? I'm writing Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Glenn is writing an episode of our show on, uh, that'll be in L.A. on Valentine's Day, but the podcast will be out uh, later in February. All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys, it's funny too because I was I was uh, I was checking with your partner about this. You, don't, you you're not big fans of Bob and Ray, right? Or you don't you? We don't know a lot of Bob no, and Ray. Don't know a lot of Bob. And we Ray, know what, we yeah. like what we've heard. We yeah, like no. Well, when I was I was growing up, my, my father used to play comedy albums for mm -hmm. me, and like he would like go for hours with like a, and leave me with like a stack of Bill Cosby albums. So by the time I was seven, I talked like a well-educated black thirty-year-old from Philadelphia. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and that, and, and Bob and Ray and stuff. So, just the whole comedy thing, like, got into my soul. That's great. That's great. I'm glad you can uh, can step into it. Uh, Josh, what are you reading? What are you watching? What's getting you uh, motivated or inspired? I'm reading a, a really great book now called Carter Beats the Devil. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's I, a um, real love fest up it here. Was a, it was it was a hole in my reading, and I. That's great. Uh, I'm reading it now, and I'm I kept me up last night. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately for my wife. <laughs> Turn the light off. <laughs> uh, before that, I read this um, book called The Brothers Sisters. The Sisters Brothers. The Sisters Brothers, yeah. yeah. Got it backwards. Uh, the That's sisters. the sequel. That's the sequel. Right. <laughs> That's after the operation. <laughs> yeah. uh, How did you find that book? I was in uh, Cannon Beach in Oregon, and it was at a little bookstore there. And the, so you hadn't heard anything? I hadn't heard anything about it, and the, and the bookseller recommended it, and... I bought it. You liked it? I did, yeah. And then it's I read a, The Thousand trip. Autumns of Jacob de Zoot before that, which was fantastic. I keep hearing great things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and anything you're watching, were there any movies that you like, the television you know, that you can't wait to watch again? I, you know, I don't like waiting on television, so I just wait for a season to be over, yeah. and then I start watching. So I watched Homeland, All in One Fell Swoop, you know, uh, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I tried watching uh, uh, Red Tails, the other night, mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> my three-year-old liked it. <laughs> yeah, <All right>. airplanes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael, what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you putting in your uh, eyes and ears? We're doing a lot of waiting too, waiting not just for Breaking Bad, but for um, Doctor Who to start up again and uh, Game of Thrones to start up again. There's nothing really happening that I'm... Justified's on? Are you watching Justified? You know, I've gone in and out of Justified. Yeah. Sometimes Sit I down. feel like yeah. it's... I like them when they're sort of loose and messy and yeah. sloppy, and sometimes they feel a little too tight and clean procedural. and polished. Yeah. yeah, like procedural. So, And then, so I'll watch a bunch, and then I'll hit one of those, and, and I'll say, oh, I don't want to... It feels like a TV show suddenly to me. And what I like about TV shows is when they don't feel so much like TV shows. Um... Although I guess if enough TV shows start feeling like they're not TV shows, then... Yeah. We that, can't all be yeah. Louis. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, reading, I just I mentioned Train Dreams, which I just read, and it's fantastic. Um, uh, I'm reading... I can't. I, I have a non-disclosure for... I'm reading a Ooh. friend, a, a very wonderful writer's... 
who's a friend of mine's forthcoming book, but I'm not supposed to talk about it. Uh, are you reading any comics these days? Uh, I read, I'm a big Matt Fraction fan, so I did some... It's too overwhelming for me to try to read even a fraction of what's out there, and so I just kind of lazily just gravitate towards things that... Well, since Matt Fraction, I know I love his work. I'll just stick with Matt Fraction. And he's got a lot going right now, so he's got Hawkeye going, and he's got these two cool Fantastic Four books he's doing, and he's got his ongoing Casanova, which I think is just a masterpiece um, with fantastic art. And uh, so that's... I'm just doing Matt Fraction and staying safe <laughs> that way. And then um, what else is there? Listening. Yeah, what are you listening to? Uh, been listening to... Um, the Staves, who are a three sisters from England who sing in just perfect close harmonies and it's kind of like modern indie folk. Are they the ones who it. just won one of these big British awards? Did they win the Mercury? Yes. Did they? I think oh, so. Oh, that's yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. They deserve <laughs> it. Uh, and then some old stuff. Eric, Eric Clapton's first album with John Mayall's Blues Breakers. I've been listening to that a lot. Fantastic. Um, please give a round of applause to our panelists, Michael Sorbon, Joshua Davis, Glenn David Gold, and Eric Larson. Give a round of applause to everyone here at Wired Magazine and to 826 Valencia. They're nice people. Good night. Cool. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 